Hello everyone, my name is Sydney Brown, Communications Deputy for the Florida College Democrats, as well as your co-host of today's episode, and this is the FCD Rising podcast, coming to you on all platforms. The FCD Rising podcast is your go-to podcast for students by students, bringing you all of the latest in politics, elections, and Florida College Democrats-related happenings. On today's episode, myself and Florida College Democrats Communications Director, Gabby Miernick, will be speaking with Emma Collum, co-founder of the National Women's March on Washington, founder and president of Women's March Florida, and vice chair of Ruth's List Florida. We will be discussing issues related to gun violence, reproductive justice, the Democratic presidential debates, and much more. Stay tuned at the end to find out how you can get involved in Women's March Florida events, as well as efforts organized by the Florida College Democrats. Without further ado, Here's our discussion with Emma Collum. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, we're so good. This is Sydney <laughs> speaking, by the way. Hi, Sydney. Great to talk to you. Hi, Gabby. Gabby. Very nice to meet you. Uh, Very nice to meet you both. Thank you for yeah. setting this up. Um, so thank you so much for speaking with us, Ms. Cullum. Uh, we want to have our listeners get to know you a little bit. Um, so before jumping into the interview, so what do you currently do and where are you from? I am, I'm an attorney. (laughs) I'm an attorney and I'm originally from New York, uh, but I live in Fort Lauderdale, Broward County. Awesome. So I want to begin with my first question by taking a little bit Um, of time to talk about your background. So you are an attorney, also an activist, the co-founder of the National Women's March on Washington, and the founder and president of Women's March Florida, a registered 501c4 nonprofit that exists separately from the national organization. So clearly you are very accomplished and successful and you wear a lot of hats. That's sweet. Yes, I do wear (laughs) a lot of hats. Thank you. (laughs) I'm interested in knowing where your journey kind of began and did you know that you wanted to do activist work growing up or did you discover it along the way? What did that look like for you? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I, I come from a very union activist family. So this was something service in the public need was really something that I was brought up with and was just part of my journey and where I've you know, sort of my background and what I've been taught. Um, and it led me to eventually go to college in the pursuit of public administration and policy. And I really began my journey working for the New York State uh, legislature in New York State. And this was right around the same time where in New York State, they had not yet legislated or allowed over-the-counter plan B. And this was a big issue when I was first working at the New York State legislature. And it was something that really was I guess you could say triggering for me because, again, working to help not just women, but women who would be most impacted by that legislation not passing, right? And that always seems to be most impacting to communities of color and low-income communities. And this really started me on the journey to decide that I was going to go to law school. Once I was in law school, I, again, started working in policy, really working for domestic violence survivors, working with unions, working in policy-based decision platforms, which eventually led me to, again, working for the legislature for the first openly LGBTQIA member of the New York State uh, legislation, where I got to work on marriage equality in New York, where it ultimately passed, yay, and I got to work on our anti-fracking legislation. 
So along the way, my husband, who I met in law school, we decided to move down to Fort Lauderdale, which is where he's originally from. And I really wanted to find my place in activism here in Florida. So I joined, you know, a, a large amount of community organizations kind of trying to find my, my path here. And then the 2016 election happened. And this is... It really led me on a journey that I never expected through Women's March um, and then Women's March Florida and eventually running for office on my own. And now I'm also the vice chair of Ruthless Florida, which works to get women, especially young women and women of color, LGBTQIA women involved in local politics from the municipal government all the way up to running for governor. And we will have a female governor in our lifetime. So, um, yeah. you know, this has been a lifelong journey. And yes, I am an attorney and I love it very much. But my passion is really just in the public good and making, you know, making the most of the time we have here on this planet. Definitely. 100%. So uh, what types of hurdles or challenges did you face in your journey and how did you overcome them? Sure. So I think, you know, I think for one, a big issue and especially one that I'm sure your constituents and your peers are talking about is the price of college right now in America. Um, you know, I, as I said, I came from a union teacher background. So going to college and going to law school was and still continues to be on me. And it is very, you know, it's, it's extremely important in this day and age where women, um, especially women here in Florida, make 90 cents to a male dollar. Women of color make 80 cents. Indigenous women make 60 cents to a male dollar that, you know, I feel that women, the best you can do for yourself is give yourself an education and always be that much more prepared and that much more ready to go into these meetings, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's in the courtroom, whether it's in the legislature. Uh, but, you know, it is a barrier to access uh, the financial needs and the student debt that this country is currently putting on our young students and putting on our recent graduates. It's, it's not something easy to overcome, especially when you want to work in public interest spaces, which we all know they don't have private income or private salary comparisons. So it is, you know, that is a burden and it sometimes does require working two, three jobs, even as an attorney. And, you know, I, I think it was very, it resonated a lot for me um, when Congresswoman um, AOC ran and she told her story of having to bartend because that's been a story for me of working with the legislature and still having to bartend or working a legal job but wanting to be able to put as much as I can into my not-for-profit spaces so taking a second job of that um and that you know the barriers to access and the financial barriers to access are very very real definitely and it is hard for students anywhere across the country but we feel it most especially as college students in the state of Florida seeing the repercussions of having to take out student loans and having student debt and the things that come alongside that and what that looks like. But I want to circle back around for just a moment. Um, and I want us to think back in time to November 6, 2016. You mentioned it earlier, the day that Donald Trump was elected to the presidency. What was going through your mind that day, both before and after you heard the results? And could you kind of walk us through what that day was like for you? Oh, sure. So that was a terrible day. <laughs> I, um, you know, I had I had woken up early that morning and I, I went to go vote before I went into my office. And actually, my birthday is November 5th. So we oh, wow. had planned a birthday party at my apartment and we 
you know, we jokingly had the bad hombres and and nasty women drinks, um, and we had bingo cards up, and we had we had groups of friends over, and all what we expected to be this really great celebration, uh, right? Because we we all truly believed in that room that we were going to see the first woman president. And as the night started going forward, you know, I always reference it that it reminded me of that scene from Great expectations where mrs haversham yes. just has the wilting wedding cake that's how it felt like <laughs> oh my gosh, I, yeah. I was like oh my god this is this is the most morbid terrible thing and one by one you know my friends started leaving as we started seeing these poll numbers coming in and realizing this unthinkable thing had happened and you know the the joke candidate that we all thought was a joke we weren't laughing anymore and i remember going to bed that evening and you know probably it was like two o'clock in the morning or something and and just staring at the ceiling and my husband did the same thing and we really weren't speaking because we were just overwhelmed and the next day I went into the office and it felt gray right because I felt as though to my left and to my right I didn't know who among my peers who among my coworkers had felt that they were better situated to vote for an individual who had built a campaign on a rhetoric of fear, fear mongering, fear of other hatred of women, hatred of immigrants, um, you know, disgusting comments about LGBT community, the immigrant community, um, the communities with disabilities. It was terrible. And I noticed that there were coworkers around me who were wearing all black. And I realized mm-hmm. that those were, those were my people, right? Because they were literally mourning this, this time in history. And that day I thought, well, what can I do? Because I, I, I really felt strongly that I had not done enough to help this election go the way that we all thought it should. And I saw on Facebook that a group of individuals were planning on mobilizing and marching on Washington, D.C. on the day after the inauguration. And I reached out to what was just a page it was just a group of women and I said I'm you know I'm an attorney in Florida I'd like to help and they wrote me back and they said are you in Florida and I said I am and they said would you like to run the state of Florida and I said yep that sounds reasonable and so that's really what happened um you know when I got on my first call this week and I think what's so important about my journey and really for all of us working towards public good and public service is that we're always looking around to see when is the adult coming into the room. And I think what this election and this this now administration has taught us is that we are the adults in the room, right? The, the adult in the room is you. So I had gotten on that phone call with all of these women and I kept waiting for someone to tell us what to do. And everybody was in the same position. We had this idea. We wanted to get to D.C., but no one knew how to do it. So, um, you know, the next day I started a Facebook page for Florida. I asked for volunteers. I ended up meeting about 20 to 25 incredible women from all over the state of Florida. And we started organizing the buses. And what we quickly found out was this wasn't just going to be a bus mobilization. People wanted to talk. So we started having neighborhood meetings and women from all across the aisle, right, um, were coming to these meetings and meeting their neighbors. And what I always think is so fascinating is that, yes, Facebook and social media is an incredible tool to organize, especially for rapid responses. But it's also, as we now really see, an incredible tool for disinformation, right, and Mm -hmm. hatred and hiding behind the screen. And what 
Women's March Florida started to enable us to do was have these neighbor to neighbor conversations. Um, and I can think if the one biggest silver lining of this administration has been, it is bringing communities as much as they're tearing apart back together, right? People are looking to be civically engaged. They want to, they want to work with their neighbors. They want to work in their community, whether it's through growing a growing, you know, farm, farm to table plots, whether it's doing literacy programs, whether it's mobilizing 40,000 people to march on DC from Florida, it's people want to be involved, but they need to be talking to each other. And I, you know, the fear of others slowly starts to dissipate when you're in the room having coffee with someone who's explaining to you that they're desperately afraid that a family member is going to be detained or that they're Muslim and they've seen more acts of, of arson and violence against the Muslim community since this has started. Um, you know, it's very hard to hide and say nasty things on a Facebook post once you're breaking bread with your neighbor and they're explaining to you how this administration is going to target them. So that's that's really the very, very simple, basic origins of how Women's March Florida got started. Eventually, we ended up bringing 40,000 Floridians up to Washington, D.C. and, you know, raising close to as much so that we were supporting and bringing the people whose voices most needed to be heard, right? Which college students, LGBTQIA community, trans community, um, you know, women of color, those were the people who needed to be up there in Washington, D.C., not just the people who could afford it. So, you know, we were really, we were overawed and humbled by the turnout from the community. And it ended up being, I, I you know, probably one of the most pivotal days of my life. Wow. And thank you so much, by the way, for for helping organize that and being a part of that movement that still yeah. continues to this day. No problem. <laughs> well, let's uh, jump forward a little bit. Um, we are approaching a big election year coming up um, where we will be electing the next president of the United States along with several other public officials. How are you feeling about all this leading up to the election? So I, you know, I think we continue to I think right now that we have an embarrassment of riches in our current presidential democratic debates. I, I've watched these debates and I just think there is this incredible opportunity to really impact change. And the fact that we have six incredible women up there, putting themselves up there for office. I mean, that's, that's nothing short of amazing. And it's something that's really it, it really pulls on my heart because as much damage has been done over the past three years that feel like 300 years, there's still some incredible, incredible acts of courage. And, and to see these women step up is just amazing to me. Uh, but I think that we continue to lean back into the old adage of electability and no one is electable until you elect them. So I think it is really important that we continue to follow our, you know, we do our due diligence. We be very, very aware of fake news and very aware of the articles that we share and and the information that we provide. And I think that, you know, the primary gives everybody an opportunity to follow their heart and follow who's really speaking to them. And then God willing, we all come back together right after the primary and we make sure um, that we have we have a change and we have a we have the people's verdict on what's been four years of the most fear-mongering, oppressive 
regime, for lack of a better word, that we've seen in a very long time. Uh, and I, you know, I'm really excited to see this happen. I'm excited to see the, you know, the on the ground grassroots change that's given us local electives, right? Like the incredible Anna Estimani or Cindy Polo or French or Striscoll. We look at these incredible, incredible people and this is our next wave of leadership. And I think if we continue the grassroots work that we put on the ground, if we continue really engaging local, um, you know, local groups and local electeds, um, I, I don't think that there's a way that we can be stopped, right? I, I really think that we are going to see a massive change in November of 2020, which I can't believe it's 2020, right? <laughs> I can't I believe we're in August talking about this, but here we are. <laughs> So on the topic of women running for elected office, you also mentioned earlier that you're the vice chairperson of Ruth's List Florida, which is an organization that helps encourage and train pro-choice Democratic women to run for public office in Florida. And I actually attended the 2019 Leadership Conference in Orlando back in February, which I must add was really well done and well organized. So props to your team and everyone involved in the organizing of that. Oh, good. yeah. So one of the key topics discussed at that conference and in many other settings since then is how to encourage women to run for elected office. And as you mentioned as well, you yourself ran for state house in District 93 last year. And I'm interested in discussing your own personal experience with running for an elected position and what advice you might be able to give to Democratic women who might be interested in running in 2020 or later on down the road. Sure. Um, so and you know, running for office is, I like to compare it to, you know, that moment on a roller coaster when it drops and the <laughs> tourist trap takes the picture of you and you're looking terrified. <laughs> so it's like that yeah. every day for years. <laughs> um, you know, there's ups, there's downs, and there's about 40 of them every day. You, you know, you, you find strength within yourself that you never knew you had. And it's, it's scary, it's terrifying, and it's worth every moment of it if you are doing it with integrity and you are doing it because you really believe that even if you lose, having run and having gotten your message out to try to change the community and support your community, it's, it's always going to be worth it, right? If, if you do it for the right reasons, no matter what the result is, it's always going to be worth it. So I always encourage women, especially young women, to, to get involved in whether, and, and if you're not ready to be the principal on a campaign, then you work on a campaign and, and you support those people because change really does happen on the local level. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's the nice part about what I learned. What, you know, what I also learned is it takes a lot of money to run and it is very hard if you're not coming up from a position of privilege to run for office. Um, you know, it's, it's countless days away from your family. You will have to take time from your job. You do really need to be ready for, for a year or two of, of a lot of sacrifice and, and to be willing to say that even if I lose I still don't resent this sacrifice. Um, so it is, it does require a lot of soul searching, but it, it is absolutely, absolutely the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I would do it again, even knowing that ultimately my race was not successful. Um, that being said, I think that what we've seen, there were seven seats flipped in Florida, in the, ha- in the Florida House. Um, and I include Margaret Good's incredible campaign in that, both of them, her special election and then her um, almost immediate election afterwards. And of those seven, 
six of them were women. And those six women were all Roosless candidates. And, um, you know, I say that, yes, as a plug to Roosless, which offers free training for candidates throughout the state of Florida, but also to say, this isn't the, just the year of women. This is the era of women. Uh, mm -hmm. We are changing the face of politics in America. And that is both as principals, right, as the candidates, and as the staff. And I think it's incredible when I'm seeing these women saying, this isn't a glass ceiling, this is the next logical step. Um, and, you know, I, I've spoken to both Leader DeBose and new leader Evan Jenny of the Florida House, and they are poised and excited to continue flipping seats and targeting women. Um, and, you know, Senate victory feels the same way. I think we here in Florida on the Democratic side we know the importance of getting women elected where women are 51% of the population. Why are only 30% of the Florida legislature made up of women? It just, it just doesn't work. We, we don't just need a seat at the table. We need to build a new damn table. And it's a table that is clearly representative of our population, not just in Florida, but throughout the country. So you can tell I'm a little passionate about it. So this is something that, you know, I'm eagerly fighting for and working for and i'm you know my goal as as working with roost list is in the next 10 years we will have over 50 percent female representation on, in the florida legislature and so that's that's what i'm working for now that's okay um so you said that you are open to running again are you opposed to talking to us about what position you plan on running for if you do run again oh sorry. um so i am i am planning on running again um i Yay. am always thank you i'm i am going to run again but i couldn't tell you what the position is going to be because for me it's really important that it has to be that the community wants me to run so I'm open and I'm looking um, and if something as it did with district 93 um, becomes available and it's the right position not just for me but for the community that I serve then you know I could step in tomorrow so that's that's really where I'm at well, we're really looking forward to whatever lies ahead in your future, and we're looking forward to supporting you. Um, I want to switch gears just for a moment and talk a bit about two recent events, and those are the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. Um, a report updated by CNN just hours ago confirmed that 31 people were killed this past weekend, 22 in El Paso, Texas, and another nine in Dayton, Ohio. And I read an article written yesterday that noted that the amount of mass shootings across the U.S. so far in 2019 has now outpaced the number of days this year so far. I live in Orlando, where in 2016 was a mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub that killed 49 people. And then in 2018, there was the shooting in Parkland killing 17. And it seems like this will never end. And it's frustrating because people across the United States are pushing for gun reform and pushing for our elected officials to acknowledge these killings by implementing policy. And yet nothing seems to be happening. So what steps do you think we need to take in the wake of these recent tragedies in order to prevent this from continually occurring across the country? God. Um, so, you know, I, when Parkland happened, um, I, I, you know, which is a neighboring town in Broward, it, it really, I thought then that that was going to be the change. Uh, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to organize with folks who put on the rally to tally. And I was 
in the room when Cindy Polo, now Representative Cindy Polo, um, you know, grabbed the comment section and ran up to the Senate floor um, to demand that the voices of those students and teachers there were going to be heard um, when it seemed that the only one in the room who was going to be heard was Marion Hammer, who now has become a household name for the NRA. Um, and I thought then that the pressure and the outrage and that it was bipartisan was going to be enough. Um, I thought seeing 17 individuals brutally mowed down um, because there's no other way to say it. They were massacred. I thought that was going to be enough. Right. And what instead happened is I think they waited, what, a hundred days and then they move and then the republican legislature who shows us more and more that they believe in profit over everything else profit over country and party over country um refuses to break the hold that the nra has on them and i think the only thing that we can do is to continue to follow the youth follow you all right um because what the parkland students did um was insurmountable and it's life-changing and the fact that they realized without anybody telling them that this had to be an intersectional movement and that to just talk about um predominantly white communities that have been impacted would fail them they had to talk to those communities the communities of color that are impacted every single day by gun violence but so seldom get a march or a rally i mean what they did that's activism that's grassroots activism at its purest form um all that we can do i think is keep following the youth amplifying supporting um and not let them go quietly right like don't let them forget because what i keep thinking you know it's on the the massacres that happened over the weekend it's on the news right now you know, this administration is really, really good at pivoting over to a new emergency and making us all forget and making us scream about whatever tweet went on or whatever new celebrity battle he's having. That's not important. What's important is right now we have, we don't have a mental health problem. We don't have a video game problem. We don't have a dark web internet problem. We have a gun problem. We have, we have military grade, military like one, guns easily accessible to almost everybody in America and we are doing nothing to stop it. So until we're showing up every single day, every single day and refusing to go away and refusing to be silenced, you know, I, I think that's the only thing we can do. And, and, you know, I don't mean to pivot it, but I think it's really important. Um, Women's March Florida, along with the tremendous groups of, of um, Florida immigration coalition, um, the, um, the Florida Friends, the um, tons and tons of different activism groups just ended their final witness vigil at Homestead Detention Camp for children. And they were there every single day for close to 150 days. Every single day, these individuals, these activists were camping out at Homestead every day. And by continuing to do that, even when no one was paying attention to them, they eventually attracted the attention of all the Democratic presidential candidates who came and they met with all of us and that eventually attracted the press, right? And that eventually attracted all of Congress to come make a visit. Well, as of today, there's no children in that detention center. You don't leave, you don't give up, you keep fighting. You keep fighting when no one's noticing you until they finally damn well notice you. And then you make change. And I think that's how we have to respond to the gun legislation. We, we must demand it and we cannot go away. We cannot be silent. 100%. I completely and wholeheartedly agree with you. I want to talk briefly about the Democratic debates. 
So in last week's debate, we heard much about healthcare, immigration, climate change, criminal justice, but not so much about abortion rights or maternal health, pay equity, paid leave or childcare. I know personally that I was disappointed in not hearing more about the issues affecting women's rights and access to healthcare, but I hope that in future democratic debates, candidates will discuss these issues more intentionally and propose policies and plans that guarantee the protection of these rights. But how can voters demand that the Democratic presidential candidates speak more openly and, frankly, more often about women's issues and issues of reproductive justice? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I feel, you know, one of the things that was said to me when I was running for office was don't talk about abortion. Um, That is not a topic that is going to attract voters. Um, It's almost a and I'm doing air quotes. (laughs) um, It's a fringe issue. And, and it's not a fringe issue. Abortion is health care. Um, this, is, this is a form of health care. And, and to ignore that, to not speak about it, you're ignoring half the population. And, and I can't imagine that we see all women or trans women as half of the population, right? And as a fringe, as a fringe group. I, so I think it's so important for incredible activists like you two um, who are just, you know, you're, you're on your journey and you're making your voice and you're doing this really cool podcast, which is something that I definitely never did in college, um, <laughs> you know, that you're saying this and you're getting it out there and you're demanding these answers and you're showing up at the town halls and you're, you know, you're the amazing platform. And I go back to the amazing platform that social media gives young activists or activists alike is actually access to these to these politicians right it's access to these campaigns um and i think it's really important you know that we keep looking back to what people are doing on the local level right i I thought one of the most incredible bills that got passed in florida through this incredible crappy session (laughs) as is probably the worst word the least worst word i could call it one of this incredibly crappy session was chevron jones and amy mercado passed the dignity pill i i you know i think it's just we have these incredible local um, legislation, both good and bad, that we have to be really aware of, right? And and it's not just talking about the abortion issue, but it's also talking about infant mortality in Black and Brown communities. It's also talking about the fact that here in Florida, we have not um, we have not done Medicaid expansion, right? Leaving billions of dollars on the table. Who does that impact? That impacts the majority of women, mothers, children, right here in Florida. Um, and so while this definitely has to be a conversation at the federal level, at the executive level, at the state level, we can enact things to protect us, right? We can we can enact red flag laws that protect us in case Roe v. Wade is ever overturned. We can follow suit with, you know, incredible legislatures like Amy Mercado and Chevron Jones to ensure that we're bringing dignity to incarcerated women. Um, there's so much we can do at the state level. And I absolutely agree. It has to be part of the federal level and the federal conversation. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a very big proponent for local government matters. And sometimes it matters more than what's happening on the federal level. So we need to fight like hell to ensure that bills proposed such as Mike Hill's um, heartbeat abortion bill never sees the light of day out of committee um, because it's it's untenable. It's intolerable. It's cruel. And it is short-sighted and it is, and passing a heartbeat bill like that is only going to impact the most marginalized communities amongst us. Mm, definitely. 
Um, well, I would like to thank you so much, Ms. Cullen, for coming on our show and speaking with us today. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners, maybe about things happening in Florida or the Women's March update? Sure. Um, so we will be having, we will be announcing in the next two weeks our Women's March Florida 2019-2020. Um, and what this is going to be is kicking off on Women's Equality Day, um, which is August 26th. We will be having fundraisers throughout the state. Um, and we will be announcing our at-home lobby day starting in October, where we will be helping our membership and anybody who wants to be involved advocate and lobby their local elected officials. Um, and we will be giving you training on how to effectively lobby your local officials, because remember, they work for you, not the other way around. On the weekend of the 19th, 20th, 21st of January, we will be holding our annual Women's March Florida events. You can find large events in Jacksonville, Orlando, and Miami with more news to come. And then in the first week of February, a date to be announced, we will be mobilizing up to Tallahassee for a march on the Capitol and a, um, an incredible speaking opportunity with all of our wonderful progressive legislatures in the lobby hall and then to effectively lobby our government. Because again, just remember, they work for you. It's not the other way around. Hold them accountable. So we can't wait to see all of your listeners and all of you at these great events that we have. And just remember, you know, this, this vote that you have, this isn't just, it's not a hassle. It's not a burden. It's not something annoying that you have to do every November. This is your voice. And the special interests and the powers that be wouldn't be working so hard to impact amendment for legislation or make, you know, Jim Crow era style voter repression a fact if they weren't afraid of your voice, if they weren't afraid of your vote. So we, we really need you all out there and we need 100% voter representation come November. Most definitely. So one final question before we sign off. How can listeners contact you or get in touch with Women's March Florida representatives near them? Sure. Um, you can check out our website. It's womensmarchfl.org. And if you'd like to contact us, get involved or start a chapter of your very own, you can contact hello at womensmarchfl.org. And we're so excited to hear from you. Perfect. Thank you so much again. And we look forward to seeing all of the incredible work you and your team do moving forward. Thank you. Same for you all. Thank you for leading. Thank you for doing this. Want to learn more about the Women's March Florida? Visit womensmarchfl.org to connect with the Women's March chapter in your area. Are you or someone you know interested in appearing on the FCD Rising podcast to discuss politics, current events, or other political updates? Email communications at flcollegedems.org for more information on how to be featured on our show. If you want to connect with the Florida College Democrats in a larger capacity, visit flcollegedems.org to discover upcoming opportunities in a city near you. This is your co-host, Sydney Brown, signing off with the Florida College Democrats.